in every age there are generational issues. Um, parents have been agonising, I think, about their teenagers since uh, Adam and Eve agonised over Cain and Abel. And, and for most people, it, it's just a period to be endured, a difficult period um, between the dependency of childhood and the independence of adulthood. But for people of faith, there is an extra dimension to it. Israel were the uh, people of God. They had been called as a nation to bring God's blessing to the whole world. And uh, each generation was responsible for taking up the baton in that great relay race. Each generation had a question hanging over it. Who was going to do that? And uh, we've seen, if you've been here, uh, as we've looked at 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 3, we have seen that there is a rising new generation in um, these early chapters of 1 Samuel. We saw, as, as James has already alluded to two weeks ago, young Samuel himself growing up, demonstrating servant-heartedness, learning wisdom, displaying great courage, um, uh, uh, learning from the word of God on his way to becoming a faithful servant of, of God, a minister of God's word. A new generation is taking up that baton. Hannah was right when uh, she, his mother, an obscure person said, he raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap, he seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 8. That's what God does. Sometimes the most unlikely people take up the baton and carry the faith into the next generation. But in 1 Samuel 2, there was another aspect to Hannah's prayer as well. Verse 4, she said, the bows of the warriors are broken. Verse 7, for instance, she pointed out, the Lord also sends poverty. The Lord also humbles. He not only lifts up lowly people like Samuel, he puts down the mighty. She said, in verse 3 of chapter 2. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for the Lord knows. So this week we have perhaps the more difficult task before us of looking at that other, darker aspect of what Hannah was talking about because Actually, that story has been unfolding as well at the same time as the good news story of Samuel. Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 3, not only describes the rise of Samuel, it describes the, the decline of a family, a fading family. Um, in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way back at the beginning, we were introduced to these two young men, Hophni and Phinehas, and a little later in the chapter we're introduced to Eli. He is a senior priest, 
but he's not altogether wise. He mistakes, remember, Hannah's heartfelt prayer for drunkenness. He rebukes her unfairly, but he is a man who is good at heart and when she points out that she was actually praying, he, he, he repents and he blesses her. But in chapter 2, we start to learn something about his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Verse 12, Eli's sons were wicked men, they had no regard for the Lord. They had no regard for the Lord, is literally, they didn't know the Lord. And that's not necessarily um, a moral judgment on them. Samuel in, in chapter 3 is described as not yet knowing the Lord. At one point, no. The, the the true comment on their character is in the first thing that they said. The uh, word underlying uh, the word wicked that we have in our versions is a word associated with worthlessness. You could probably better translate it: they were wasters. They were a waste of space. They were greedy to start with, verse 13. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Now in the... In the um, uh, the, the, the code of how they were to behave at this place of worship, there was plenty of provision for the priests. They would never go hungry. But the rules were strict about what they could and couldn't have. And Hophni and Phineas don't like rules. They want potluck supper, not the, provi- the, the, the provided one. Most especially the fat of any sacrifice had to be burned and then the rest of the, uh, the meat boiled. But Hophni and Phineas, Phineas, they like their Sunday roast. Verse 15. Even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And their protests were useless. In fact, They were not only greedy, they were prone to abuse of power. Verse 16, if the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over, if you don't, I'll take it by force. In verse 22, we see that also they were sexually promiscuous. It's actually a familiar little triumvirate of vices. Money, greed, sex and power. A toxic cocktail in young hearts. But behind all of those was the core issue that this text is actually pointing to. These young men had a fundamental disregard for God himself. Verse 17. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And Samuel points it out 
in verse 25 when he talks to his sons. If a man sins against another man, which they were doing plenty of, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, which was fundamentally what they were doing, who will intercede for him? And all the while, this, 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 this little horror story at Shiloh is being contrasted with that young Samuel, man Samuel who we've seen before, ministering before the Lord in, uh, uh, in verse 18 of chapter 2, growing in stature and favour with the Lord in verse 26. And uh, amazingly, Eli is a good mentor to Samuel but completely ineffectual with his, uh, with his own sons. Now, what was, what was Brian saying about someone he knew in, uh, in full-time Christian ministry in that case? Perhaps doing great stuff out there. But at home? Verse 23. Samuel said to his sons, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. Um, if a man sins against another man and so on. But his sons did not listen to their father's rebuke for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Even at this point in the story, the die is cast. God himself has decided those boys have come too far and he's closed the door to repentance for them. One Samuel three verse thirteen, when um, Samuel has to report God's word again to, to 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 Eli, God makes it very plain that Eli is being judged because he didn't restrain his sons. Here you see, Eli could have stood up more firmly. Even if it was now beyond his sons for them to repent, he could have stood up and distanced himself at least publicly from what those boys were doing. Now, very the indication he could have had them removed from their office. But he just goes and quietly talks to them and when they won't listen to him, he sort of wrings his hands in despair. A man of God, he's unnamed, comes and prophesies to uh, Eli. Verse 29 of chapter 2. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why did you, Eli, as well as your sons, scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed? Why do you honour your sons more than me? by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. No, Eli may not have actually done it, but his passivity uh, implicates him in what is going on. The questions that are put to Eli are actually deeply penetrating. Second half of verse 27, Did I not call, clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? 
Were you confused somehow about who I am, Eli? Did I not make myself clear to you, Eli, when I delivered Israel out of Egypt, when I took them through the Red Sea, when I gave them the law at Sinai, when I, when I, uh, when I guided them through the desert, when I brought them into the promised land? Did it leave you confused, Eli? We might add to, 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 to us today, does, does, does Jesus not make himself clear? Do you read about Jesus in the New Testament and do you think, okay, well, you know, honour God or dishonour him, it makes no difference? That's what the prophets say. Or do you perhaps feel somehow that you are hard done by, he says, verse 28, I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear or eat body in my presence. I gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. You are privileged, Eli. What are you doing with it? Any child from a Christian home who has grown up in the Christian faith is deeply privileged to have been prayed for and prayed with, to have grown up with parents, maybe inadequate parents, but parents who were committed to goodness, to have been part of the family of God. Are they hard done by? Is that why they're rebelling? Come off it, says the prophet. They have collectively, though, despised all of that. Verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honour me, I will honour. Those who despise me will be disdained. There is no promise from God of goodness to those who despise him. As Jesus says, anyone who's ashamed of me when I come, I will be ashamed of him. A family actually is not going to be completely cut off from God. The prophet makes that clear. But generation after generation will die young and from now on they will be a family that just fades into oblivion. Now what a, what a warning to Christian fathers here amongst us. Now let me, let me be clear, it's not a call to be harsh with our children. The Apostle Paul, actually quite specifically, speaking to fathers, says, do not exasperate your children in Ephesians 6 verse 4. He recognises that a danger of, of, of fathers being exasperating. But then he explains what he expects of them. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are called to be covenantally faithful to their children, to their families. 
fathers are called to demonstrate a, a, a commitment to the Lord that actually, as Brian said again, does supersede our commitment to our family but actually does the family the best good that they could possibly have. I noticed a long time ago there is a pattern in scripture of great leaders or at least significant leaders who fail at home. You know, Isaac can't manage his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob oversees a homicidal feud amongst his sons. David doesn't dare discipline his sons and in his family it all gets out of hand until it's civil war and the whole nation is divided. I'm in fear of being too much like Eli, I have to say. And far less confident than I was uh, 20 years ago that I can escape all accusations of that kind. But I don't want to blunt that warning that there is in Scripture. Fathers, beware. And kids. Don't mean little ones. I mean offspring of Christian homes. Beware. Eli's criticised, but Hophni and Phineas are too. If you were raised in a, in a Christian home, then you will be one of the people who's probably quite comfortable coming somewhere like this. And you will know all the right stuff. You will be able to say all the right things. You will look impressive. Those kinds of young people often rise to prominence in their school and university CUs. But their heart has not yet been won. There is a battle to be won for young hearts. A battle against money, sex and power in particular, just as there was for Hophni and Phineas. Those three are wonderful servants. Money is a wonderful tool. Um, um, sex makes, holds families and couples together and brings great joy in that context. Um, power, status, reputation can be greatly used for God. They are wonderful tools. They are not bad. They are terrible masters. They are so often like a little pack of wolves harrying us, chasing us and if they get the chance, ravaging us. They are like sirens beckoning beckoning us unsuspecting uh, onto the rocks, especially men. Just because you're in church this morning doesn't mean to say that 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 battle is won. It is a real battle for your heart. Indeed, those of us who've lived a long time know that it's an ongoing battle. And let me say to you, I've, I've, I've seen all the disasters I want to see, frankly. I've seen the, 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 the love of money 
eat at the heart of a person like some, some, some rot spreading in a fruit until finally there's really just a thin skin that looks good and then the blemishes start to appear on the surface and you realise that something deep and profound has gone wrong in that life. I've seen the love of power and respectability and status going to people's heads more and more as they, as they, they get older until um, finally they turn around and they, affect, they, they say, in the phraseology I've heard, you know, the church is just muppets. They don't know how the world works. I know how the world works. They're pathetic. I'm walking away. And of course I've seen sex capsize lives again and again and again. Do not take it lightly. God will not be mocked. Those who honour me, I will honour, he says. Those who despise me will be disdained. the next generation, in every generation, will have surprising, marginal, humble people rising up and taking the baton and having lives of growing faith and they will have surprising, central, respected people from the most wonderful families falling. It always happens. But something else happens in our story in 1 Samuel 4 that we must also take seriously. You see, one family's trouble spreads out infects, in fact, a whole nation. The story is actually very simple. They fight the Philistines, they are defeated and then they ask an absolutely vital question, the elders of the nation. Verse 3, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? And here's their answer. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. The question is not wrong, the answer is. They think that just bringing the ark of the Lord, which symbolises God's presence, just, just sort of hauling this symbol of God's presence into their midst is going to solve all their problems. And the complete stupidity of their answer is hinted at in verse 4. Do you see that? So they, they sent men to Shiloh and they brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Hophni and Phinehas are there. So what's God going to do? Is he going to say, well, I must honour my ark? 
Or is he going to say, I will not have this travesty of worship? And the rest of the story tells us what he opts for. There is a terrible momentum about it. The the Israelites get excited. The Philistines get even more excited. They go to battle and the loss is even worse. Um, Hophni and Phinehas are killed along with thousands of others and the ark is captured. And, And the real story is not Hophni and Phinehas. Even Samuel sees that, verse 14. The blind old man now is waiting for news from the battlefield and he hears an outcry in the town. What's the meaning of this uproar, he says. And the man who brought the message to the town came over to Eli, who was 98 years old. His eyes were set that he could, so he could not see. And he told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. What happened, my son? Eli asks. And the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Now notice this. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair and died. That's a terrible personal tragedy, the death of Hophni and Phinehas. But old Eli, he knows what the real tragedy is. God's left them. God's left the nation. Would he desert us? Well, the terrible truth is he could. He will not tolerate unrepentant sin amongst his people. And if they collectively tolerate it, he walks away. And yet, people still today think, just as, as uh, those Israelites did, so our church is not thriving. What should we do? Change the music, change the worship style, change the pastor, change anything but our fundamental attitude towards God. So I'm not thriving and feel a long way from God. What should I do? Introduce this technique or that technique or the other technique. Anything but humble myself before the Lord and say, please Lord, forgive my sins. Please Lord, reassure me of your grace and your mercy. Help me to overcome my failure. Notice as well how important, how devastating the influence of this leading family was. Failure of one family spread out to the whole nation until the whole nation was confused and the whole nation was defeated. 
you who are in leadership here, you who perhaps in the future will have a significant influence on the people of God. Take that seriously. Those who honour me, I will honour. Those who despise me will be disdained. So what about us? What about, what about you as an individual? Here, here is the other side of that intergenerational story. A family falling and corrupting a nation. And in one sense, there is, there is this horrible inevitability about it. That, that drives through that story. Remember, even at an early stage, God had decided those sons are not going to repent, they do not listen to their fathers because it was his will to put them to death. Or um, in chapter 3, when Eli um, hears the news from uh, Samuel's lips, reiterated, chapter 3, verse 14, we, we hear, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by any sacrifice or offering. It, it, it is like you've spotted the rail is loose on the railway track, but all you can do now is wait for the train to come and the carnage to happen. Reading this story? Is that what your life's like? Is that what your family's life is like? Well, one of the wonderful things that the New Testament makes plain is that with the coming of that new era, those things are no longer as inevitable as they once were. We are promised, for instance, that there is a sacrifice and atonement for sin, which is far greater than anything that was offered in Old Testament times. It is the death of God's Son, Jesus Christ, for our sins on the cross. That, that, that outshines those Old Testament sacrifices, like the, like the sun outshines a star. There is forgiveness for your sin. And we are told that family patterns of failure can be broken. This is the new thing that God does by his spirit. So it is here amongst us. We, we have the offspring of complete failures of parents. We have people... Uh, reformed drug addicts. We have people who have failed in their own lives in all sorts of ways. And God turned them around. No longer, said Jeremiah, will they say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. No longer will there be an inevitable sense that the sins of the parents get transferred on 
to the, to, to the kids. Instead, God's going to write his law on our hearts by his spirit. You can break that pattern. You can be forgiven. You can start a new life. But you need to ask for it. You need to seek it. You don't need to be an Eli or a Hophni or a Phineas. You can be a new person. I just want I want to appeal to you. If you've seen the force and the horror of that other story, I want to say to you seek God, ask him to turn you around. Pray that his spirit would set your heart alive. Break those patterns. I can't do that for you. Actually, you can't do that in the end for yourself. But God can do it in you. And you can ask him to do so.